The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Uh, There is an outline on your bulletin of today's sermon, if that helps you as we proceed through the text. For those of you who haven't been here, just let me set the context for you. We've been going through the book of Acts from the very beginning, and it's written by Luke who was raised up by God, who got saved probably through the ministry of the Apostle Paul and became Paul's personal friend, a co-missionary and also a a medical doctor by way of profession and an amazing scholar and historian. And he wrote the Gospel of Luke, but he also, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, penned the book of Acts. And for us in our English Bible, that's 28 chapters, and it's, it's a masterpiece. We've been going through it, and it begins with, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and his ascension and how he established the church at the very beginning, about 30 A.D., and then it traces the ministry of the first 12 apostles in Jerusalem. And then at about chapter 9, it picks up with the ministry of the Apostle Paul, and it will uh, show the ministry of the Apostle Paul from chapter 9 to 28 over the course of 20 years of Paul's amazing ministry and the laying of the foundation of the Christian church. So this is real history. This is our history uh, as a church, Christians. Where did Christianity come from? What were its origins? How did it start? What was the mandate? That's all recorded right here in the book of Acts. We are now a good 20 years into the ministry of the Apostle Paul. He's the, the apostle to the Gentiles. He's gone on three missionary trips, traveled thousands of miles, preached in town after town, all kinds of cities. He's preached in all kinds of cities and towns, and even regions and countries that had never heard of Jesus Christ. And with God's blessing, he was able to ward off all kinds of persecution and even death on many occasions and successfully see the Spirit of God bring believers in response to the gospel as new Christians, and then he would establish churches with these people everywhere he went. So he did that all over the Gentile world. planning. So Paul was a... Among so many other things, he was a church planter. And after his third missionary journey, over the course of many years, it was God had laid on his heart, he wanted to go to Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, to provide immediate relief for the Christians who were suffering in Jerusalem and in its vicinity. They had been suffering for many years. How were they suffering? First, they were suffering from persecution from unbelievers in Jerusalem. These devout Jews heard the gospel of Jesus. They believed in Jesus. They became Christians. And then there was great hostility towards them who didn't believe in Jesus. And that was the leadership of the Jews in Jerusalem. Basically ostracized them. They were kicked out of their synagogues. Chased out of their homes. Thrown in prison. Some of them were beaten and murdered for their faith for being Christians. This was relentless and it was going on continually year after year. They lost their jobs, so there was a financial hardship that came with that, with being a Christian. In addition to that, there was a a famine that struck that area, that part of the world. We know that from the Bible. We also know it from history. So all the more need financially and just the basics of life and food and survival. So the Apostle Paul heard about this, had a, a heart for the Christians in Jerusalem, and so he began collecting money from all the other Gentile churches to collect uh, money really so that he could take 
all that money to Jerusalem and give it to the Christians who were in need in Jerusalem so they could distribute it uh, to help alleviate and meet their needs. And so that's what he did at the end of his third missionary journey in Acts chapter 23. And when Paul came to Jerusalem, he was already hated there by the leadership of Jerusalem, the Jewish leadership, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the high priest. He was a wanted man, basically. But he was a Jew, so he had every right and freedom to go into the temple as a Jew and to worship, which he did. And then a small faction of Jews from Asia who knew of his ministry, who hated Paul, saw him in the temple, conjured up false accusations against him, created a a riot publicly in the temple grounds and started falsely accusing and uh, calling the crowd to come and create a mob and calling Paul a blasphemer. They defiled the temple and they dragged him out of the inner part of the temple into the outer court and began to beat him almost to death. And then the Romans intervened, the Roman soldiers saw this, they were nearby, and they intervened and they rescued Paul and stripped him away from the Jews. And then the the Roman commander in charge, his name was uh, Claudius Lysias. He was a Chiliarch. He was very influential, had a lot of authority. He was basically the main Roman authority in Jerusalem. And he took orders from the governor of Judea, who was in Caesarea, 60 miles away. Felix was his name who took orders from Caesar himself. And so Claudius Lysias rescued Paul, asked the crowd, what's going on? Why are you trying to kill this guy? Talked to Paul, couldn't get answers that were sufficient for him. Then he began to proceed to interrogate Paul by whipping him, stripped him bare, and just when they were about to start beating him on the back, Paul said, I'm a Roman citizen. And that was illegal to beat a Roman citizen who hasn't had a trial, number one, who hasn't been given a verdict of being guilty, number two. And number three, you couldn't whip a Roman citizen anyway like that in public. So Lysias, the Roman commander, realized, whoa, better not do that. So then he subjected Paul to a Jewish trial the next day before the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of Jerusalem, that was made up of Sadducees and Pharisees, the Sadducees who believed only in the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pharisees, who said they believed in the whole Old Testament, including the resurrection. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. Paul knew that. So when he spoke up at the trial, he said, the only thing I have done is I have professed my belief in the resurrection of the dead. And then that made the Sadducees angry so that they couldn't sit down and contain themselves. And they got up and started screaming at Paul. And then the Pharisees said, hey, what's wrong with the resurrection? We believe in the resurrection. This man has done nothing wrong. And then the Sadducees and Pharisees began to go out each other's throats. And it became a tumult, totally chaotic, out of control. This was supposed to be a courtroom of decorum and order. So the Roman soldier intervenes again and said, man, these Jews, they are out of control. Took Paul to preserve his life from these bloodthirsty anti-Jesus Jews. By the way, Jesus was a Jew. But these were Jews who hated Jesus, took Paul, put him in the Roman barracks, kept him in prison and just decided, I need answers. I'm not getting it. So I'm going to send him to Felix. I'm going to wash this prisoner of my hands. He's been nothing but trouble for me. And that's exactly what Lysias did. He sent Paul with 400, almost 500 Roman armed soldiers in the middle of the night under the cover of darkness 
up north to Caesarea where the governor Felix was. And so Paul arrived there and about five days later, Felix, the governor, Roman governor, is going to hold trial. There's Paul all by himself being accused of crimes, capital crimes. And then there's uh, the accusers who Felix told them to come up to Caesarea and they arrived. And it was Ananias, the high priest, and some of the Jewish elders, and then a professional lawyer named Tertullus. Last week we saw Tertullus, the professional lawyer, master of Jewish law, master of Roman law, laid out his case, very short, and basically it was filled with lies. As I was reading the text, I counted 18 different lies that came out of this lawyer's mouth in one paragraph. In a formal legal courtroom, falsely accusing Paul, whose crime was he was a Christian. That was his crime. And they believed he was worthy of death as a result. So now we pick up, and Paul's finally going to get his chance in the courtroom before Felix to give his defense. So let's go ahead and look at it, starting at verse 10. And so today's sermon I call Paul on trial, the defense. Last week was Paul on trial, the prosecution. We're looking at 10 through 21. I broke it down into three points there to walk us through the text, which is almost exclusively the oral testimony of the Apostle Paul in a courtroom setting. Felix is sitting not only as the governor of all of Judea, he's also sitting there as judge. Prosecution, they have a high-powered team of professionals in Jewish law, including Tertullus, the hired gun, to bring their case, to make their case. And then there's Paul. He's all by himself. He has nobody representing him, nobody defending him. We don't even know if any of his friends were even allowed to be in the room. Could be. If they were, they're not allowed to speak because they don't. So Paul has to fend for himself. Not Paul has to fend for himself. Not really. So that we don't feel too sorry for the Apostle Paul thinking that he's been abandoned by all of those who know and love him in Jerusalem. He's actually got the greatest lawyer in the world, or shall I say the greatest advocate in the world. The greatest advocate, and that's... if. Let me just read Luke 12 to you. Luke 12, verses 11 and 12. This is a promise that Jesus made to his apostles, the 12 apostles. Paul wasn't in this group yet, but this, this promise applies to Paul because he became an apostle, and Jesus actually reiterated this promise to Paul personally. But 30 years before this trial, in 57 AD, 30 years before, or around 30 AD, Jesus made this promise to his apostles, warning them that, boy, I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave you here on earth. You're going to be by yourselves. You have to represent me, speak up about me, and then there will be some good results, but mostly there will be bad results. The bad results will, people won't, won't listen to your message. They will reject you. Not only that, they will arrest you. They will try to hurt you. And here's that's the context. And so he says in verse 11 of Luke 12, and when they, those that don't like, the message of Jesus, when they bring you before the synagogue, so you've been arrested for being a Christian. That's what's going to happen to you, apostles. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, after you've been arrested, when you're put on trial, do not become anxious. Wow. Do not worry. Do not fret. 
Rest in God. Rest in this promise from Jesus himself. Do not become anxious. Well, we saw Peter and John and the apostles get arrested and go before trial that was vicious, even beaten and worn with their lives. And if you go back and read it in Acts, that promise was fulfilled. Peter and John never were anxious. They spoke with incredible boldness and courage as the Spirit of God came upon them in fulfillment of this promise. So Jesus says, when you go before rulers and authorities in the synagogue, do not become anxious about how or what you should speak in your defense or even what you should say. Why? Because for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour. You know what that means? In that very moment, instantaneously, spontaneously, The Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. What an amazing promise. And that happened with John, Peter, the apostles, and now it's happening with Paul. And we're going to see it. He's just, he is covered with the Spirit of God, giving him supernatural peace. He's not fretting. He's not anxious. He's not vengeful. He's not retaliatory. He is filled with the Spirit of God. And it is God, the Spirit, who is giving the very words for Paul to speak. And here's what the Spirit of God says through Paul. They are Paul's words, absolutely 100%. They are also the words of the Spirit of God, 100%. How does that happen? I don't know. That's a miracle. And so let's go ahead and look at Paul's defense. Uh, point number one is the first thing Paul does is he refutes the charge of insurrection, verses 10 through 13. Oh, uh, before I get to the text, just... By way of reminder, uh, Claudius, Lysus Claudius. Okay, the Roman commander wrote a formal legal binding letter to Felix, the judge, before this court took place. It was a short letter. It's in Acts 20, uh, earlier in Acts uh, 23 or, before, yeah, 23, 26 through 30. And Lysias delineated to the judge, okay, I'm sending a prisoner to you. You need to have a trial. But here's what I know. Here are the facts. Five facts we already know that Felix doesn't know who Paul is. The only thing he knows is what Lysias has sent him in writing. And here are the five facts that Felix already knows to be true about this case and about Paul specifically. Felix now knows, even though he hasn't met Paul yet or heard Paul, he knows that the Jews tried to kill him. Just in a mob riot. Number two, he knows that Paul is a Roman citizen. That is huge. Number three, he knows that the issue of dispute is over Jewish law, Jewish theology, not Roman law, nothing political threatening Roman law. That's very important because Felix was a Roman. He was not a Jew. Number four, he knows that Paul is not guilty according to Lysias. Lysias already rendered his verdict. Just so you know, judge, I heard the testimony and Paul is guilty of nothing warranting being arrested or killed. And then number five, he knows, Felix knows that uh, the Jews had then a follow-up sinister plot that was illegal to kill Paul. Wow, having those facts in writing 
from the Roman authority in charge who was hands-on with Paul's previous case, you would think, oh, this is ironclad. Case shut. Boom. Sadly, that's not the case because of Felix was not really a just judge. We're going to see that despite Paul's testimony. Um, so Tertullus laid out a case, verses 1 through 9. saw it last week, and it was primarily three things, uh, the three S's that he charged Paul of. First was sedition. That's a political accusation. That was not in Felix's or Lysias's letter. This is new. Sedition, the equivalent of treason. This is a political crime against Rome. He's a rabble-rouser, ringleader, and he's trying to create insurrection of all the Jews all over the world to basically overthrow Rome. That's the first thing he throws out, out of thin air, and he knew that should probably make Felix very uncomfortable and really win him over to his side. Lysias never said anything about that in his letter. So it's a lie, sedition. The second one is sectarianism. Sectarianism comes from the word sect. That's The word sect is here two times in the passage. Sect in your English Bible. The Greek word is heresias. Heresy. Heresy. Heresy in its original meaning was something that just a few people in a small clique or group believed that was against what everybody else believed and it became divisive. That's a heresy. Heresy is either false behavior or false teaching that splinters and divides people. And that's what they were accusing Paul of. Uh, he's a sectarian. He, that was verse 5, the sect, the heresy of the, the Nazarenes. Some, so basically what Tertullus was saying is Paul is guilty of sectarianism, the sect of the Nazarenes, this weird, deviant, cultic, dangerous, cliquish, undermining theological belief of people that actually imminently threatens not only the Jews, but also Rome itself and Caesar worship. That's really what it meant. It's not Judaism. Judaism had the stamp of approval to exist and flourish in the land of Israel and beyond within the Roman Empire. The Romans said, you know what, Jews, you can go ahead and do your religion thing. And to do your religion thing in the Roman Empire, you did need the approval of Rome. You couldn't just bring your and make up your own religion. Because religion, number one, was the worship of Caesar. Any religion, worldview, or belief that undermined that was condemned and actually warranted the death penalty. So here, another serious charge against Paul by Tertullus, which was a lie. So you've got sedition sectarianism and then the third charge was sacrilege sacrilege or synonymous with blasphemy and what was that that paul was desecrating the temple and i talked about this last week to desecrate the temple the jews said that warranted the death penalty and this is one of the few areas where the romans would allow the jews to prosecute this crime of desecrating the temple they gave them autonomy and jurisdiction over their own temple this was the worst thing you can do is desecrate the temple. Uh, you could immediately kill somebody on the spot for desecrating the temple and get away with it if you were Jewish and the Roman Empire wouldn't intervene. And that's exactly what happened with Stephen. We saw in Acts chapter 7. They just they didn't have a trial, really. They didn't ask permission from Caesar. They just took 
Stephen out, dragged him out of the temple and killed him on the spot. And they didn't suffer any repercussions as far as we know for that. So there it is, sedition, uh, sectarianism, and sacrilege. And now Paul's going to respond to these three charges. And he, he takes them one by one and in order with the facts. Let's go ahead and look at them. Uh, starting at verse 10. After listening to Tertullus's brief accusation, uh, Felix, the judge, verse 10, and when the governor, Felix, had nodded for him to speak, Paul responded. So Tertullus was done. Okay, that's enough. I heard you. Paul, go ahead. Just nods. And here's what Paul says. Instead of buttering up the judge with uh, false platitudes and all these uh, untrue, flattering statements, which Tertullus did. Paul doesn't do that. He's a man of integrity. He speaks the truth. He gives respect where respect is due in light of Romans 13. He doesn't flatter. He knows his Old Testament. He knows Proverbs says that flattering words are, are an abomination to the Lord. We speak integrity as Christians. We speak the truth. We give honor where honor is due. We don't flatter people. We don't try to manipulate people to curry favor from them. That's a lack of integrity. That is evil. So Paul's the exact opposite of Tertullus. He is going to greet Felix with honor, respect, by virtue of his position. The man was corrupt to the core, yet Paul still respects the position because he said in Romans 13, all authorities exist by God. Anybody that is in an authoritative position was put there ultimately by God. And the position needs to be honored accordingly. And that's what Paul does. So look what he said. Paul begins to speak, knowing that for many years you have been a judge to this nation. Paul says the only possible, true, positive, non-negative thing he could say about Felix. He couldn't compliment his personality, things that he's done that have benefited the Jews, all these great laws, how he rules with them. He didn't say that. He recognized the fact that you're a judge, you were in charge, and you've been in this position a while. That was all totally true. And it wasn't disrespectful. Then he says this. Oh, by the way, uh, the fact that he could say, knowing that for many years you have been a judge to this nation, that was true. Uh, we know from Tacitus Josephus that, I already said this, Felix had this position of governor from 52 A.D. to now 57. He's been ruling as the judge and the governor of Judea over Jerusalem for five years. Before that, five years before that, he was in Samaria ruling. Samaria was Jews as well. So at this point, Paul knows that Felix has had 10 years of hands-on experience of the Jews and their weird religion. So Paul is confident. Felix, of all people, you've been here 10 years. You know all the nuances and, and the weird dynamics and how the Samaritans and the Jerusalem uh, Jews, they're at their, each other's throats over weird uh, idiosyncrasies of our theology and how the Sadducees and the Pharisees have theological disagreements, yet they're all under the umbrella of Jewish. Felix, you know that. You know that. So as a result, I cheerfully, I am confident that you have the competency in light of personal experience to hear my case. That's why he could say with sincerity, I cheerfully make my defense. He wasn't happy that he had Felix as judge. He was confident that Felix knows how Jews operate and that he could discern if he's going to have integrity. This is really a non-issue. Throw the case out. So I make my defense with confidence. Verse 11. So since you can take note of the fact that no more than 12 days ago, as to the first charge of sedition, is what he's saying. Treason, insurrection, all over the known world. 
By the way, which what does that take? Well, that takes time. That takes a huge network. That takes months and years to plan to be a terrorist like that. Orchestration of many people in power behind the scenes. And also a motive is what it takes. And Paul deals with both issues. He didn't have the time. Uh, he didn't have the time or the motive to be a rabble rouser creating sedition and treason to overthrow the Roman Empire in Jerusalem because he says at the middle of verse 11, you know that no more than 12 days ago, I've only been here for 12 days, six of those have been in prison. I've had freedom for about seven days since I came to Jerusalem. And there's only one thing I was doing when I was in Jerusalem for seven days. That was becoming ceremonially clean so I could go to the temple, worship God, and offer my sacrifice. That's the only thing I did. So his motive, he says at the end of verse 11, I've only been here 12 days and I only, and I came to work. You want to know my motive? My motive was to worship God according to the Jewish religion. That's it. So much for sedition, treason, overthrowing Rome. That's his argument. Verse 12, he goes on with the details and the facts. And neither in the temple nor in the synagogues, that's two, nor in the city of Jerusalem itself did these accusers find me carrying on any discussion with anything or causing a riot. So Paul is now laying out the evidence. Here's the evidence. I was here, 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 and here, and I didn't do these things they're charging me of in here, 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 and here, and they can't bring evidence accordingly. So he lays out the evidence to prove his case, to prove that he's not lying. And then in verse 13, after laying out his evidence, he points out that they have zero evidence. This is a courtroom. This is a place of uh, legal jurisdiction where you need evidence, the testimony of two or three witnesses, to validate truth or other kinds of evidence to validate accusations, especially against a Roman citizen. Where's the evidence? And so in verse 13, nor can they prove to you the charges of which they accuse me. They have no evidence. What do they have? 18 lies that came out of the mouth of Tertullus. That's their case. Paul refutes the charge of insurrection in detail. Masterful, concise, to the point, the truth. Number two, Paul clarifies the charge of, I put deviation there, which is synonymous with deviating from Jewish law, deviating from uh, the Old Testament having my own weird belief and weird invented religion, the deviation from what has been established as true among the Jews over the people that you are governor. So he's taking that head on. Uh, I don't believe anything differently than any legitimate Jew believes. I don't believe anything that's not in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, I believe in the entire Old Testament. Have you ever heard at some point in your life, some people say you're in a book or Somebody just talking about religion where they're trying to make distinctions between Jews who aren't Christians and Christians. And they say routinely, well, you got to understand the difference. Jews believe in the Old Testament. And Christians, they believe in the New Testament. And that's the difference. And people just listen. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Christians sometimes. Oh, get caught up. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a good, good way to break it down. No, it's not because it's not true. This is this is what it really is. Jews who are not Christians, they don't believe in the Old Testament and Christians believe in the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's really how it is. And that was true with Paul. Paul was a master of the Old Testament, memorized the Old Testament, raised on the Old Testament, a rabbi, a scholar, a Pharisee, an upper echelon Pharisee, trained by the best Gamaliel in Jerusalem. 
had the Old Testament probably nearly memorized. And when he became a Christian, he believed the entire Old Testament literally at face value. And unlike the Sadducees who were in charge of Jewish religion and law, the Sadducees, they only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament. They rejected the rest of it. They rejected resurrection, angels, the afterlife. Yet they were supposed to be in charge of the Jewish religion. And then the Pharisees themselves, who prided themselves on believing the whole Old Testament, but they didn't. There were huge chunks of Scripture in the Old Testament they categorically rejected. The greatest of which was that the Messiah would come and die on a cross, be buried and rise again. They categorically rejected that. That's why they rejected Jesus. So the Jews, they did not believe in the Old Testament. They didn't believe in the law. They didn't believe in Moses. They didn't legitimately worship in the temple the right way. But Paul did. And that's his argument. I don't believe in some weird deviant religion or sect or heresy. Verse 14. But this I admit to you that, yeah, I will admit that my religion is a little different than theirs, even though we're all Jews. My religion called according to the way, the way referring to Jesus is the only way to heaven. Yeah, I do believe in Jesus is the only way to heaven, which they call a sect or a heresy. I do serve God, the God of our fathers. I serve Yahweh. They serve. They say they serve Yahweh. I worship Yahweh, the God of our fathers. And believe this is key, believing everything that is in accordance in accordance with the law. I believe in everything in the Old Testament. The Sadducees didn't and the Pharisees didn't. And I believe everything that is written in the prophets. He's emphasizing there the fact that the Messiah would come and die on a cross, be buried and rise again from the dead. Verse 15, that's not the only thing I believe about Jewish religion. Verse 15, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall be uh, certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. I believe in the resurrection because it's taught in the Old Testament. The Sadducees, they didn't believe in that. And the Sadducees were primarily the ones in courtroom this day accusing Paul. So in view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience before God and before men. I try not to be, I purposely try not to be a stumbling block to people. I, I purposely go out of my way to not be a stumbling block to unbelieving Jews. I purposely would never bring an Ephesian Gentile into the Jewish part of the temple. That's what he's saying. Because that's what he was accused of. My conscience is clear. So that's, Paul clarifies the charge of deviation. And then finally, number three, Paul testifies further regarding the resurrection. The, the real issue at hand of why he's on trial, he says that he's going to say this three different times on three different occasions, three different courtroom scenarios. Verse 18 and following. Uh, verse Starting at verse 17, taking on the charge of sacrilege, of blasphemy against the temple. Now, after several years... Here's why I came to the temple, by the way. Now, after several years, I haven't been around in Jerusalem causing trouble. I've been absent. It's been several years. And finally, I did come to bring alms or an offering to my nation, the Jews, to Israel, the people I love, to present offerings. That's, that was my motive. That's why I came. In which they found me occupied in the temple according to the law, according to the T. I was in the temple, true, but I was following the Mosaic law to the T. By the book. And that's where they found me. In the temple. Having been purified. According to the book of Numbers and other places. Without any crowd or uproar. Actually it was just me and four guys. Minding our own business. Nobody even noticing us. But there were certain Jews from Asia. Who knew Paul from the third missionary journey. Verse 19. 
who ought to have been present before you. They, they need to be here. Where are these guys? They're not in the courtroom. They're not testifying against me. They got a hired hand of a lawyer who wasn't even there, who we don't even know. Presenting the case. Where are the eyewitnesses? Violating the book of Deuteronomy. Eyewitnesses. So these Jews who aren't here should be present before you to make accusation if they should have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves who are here that misdeed, let them tell you what misdeed they found when I stood before the Sanhedrin on the other trial we just had six days ago. Other than for this one statement, which I shouted out while standing among them in the courtroom, quote, for the resurrection of the dead, I am in trial before you today. That is my crime. I believe in the Old Testament scriptures that teach the resurrection. I believe in Jesus Christ who came as the Messiah in fulfillment of scriptures, who died according to scripture on behalf of sin, absorbed the wrath of Almighty God, the Father, for sin, to be punished for sinners, was buried in accordance with scripture, rose again from the dead on the third day, ascended back into heaven and reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords. He is alive. He is my resurrected Savior. That's what he was talking about. And he's coming again. And I have hope. He used the word hope. I have hope that I also shall live because Jesus said, because I live, you also shall live. And if you're a Christian today, that is your promise. That's my promise. That'll get you through anything in life. You grab it, you cling to it, you hold it. The living Lord Jesus. He reigns on high. Case closed. I arrest my case. And then Paul takes a seat. Now Felix has to render a verdict. Come back next week. Let's see what he says. Just a couple of closing thoughts in light of today's passage. Um, Practical takeaways. Christian, be bold and humble about your faith. Christian, don't flatter or compromise or distort the truth, especially when you're put on the spot. Christian, remember that you were called to suffer and be persecuted by unbelievers. That's the bad news. There's good news that's a corollary and follow-up to that, and that is, get this. Christian, remember that you will be blessed when you are persecuted for being obedient to the Bible. Whether it is people you don't know politically in the government or somewhere in the world, or people in your own family. Sometimes that's the hardest kind of persecution. And then First Peter three or chapter First Peter chapter four, twelve through fourteen. It's a great verse. It says that when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake, the Spirit of God is upon you. The Spirit of God is upon you, and His job there is to comfort you, and He He will follow through on His promise. Well, normally I would close in prayer, but we're going to close in prayer in just a moment. But right now, I'd like to transition to uh, today. We're going to we have the wonderful privilege of recognizing a new deacon in our church a new deacon and before i bring nathan up along with his wife Dee, i just want to i want to read uh, a verse and direct your attention to first timothy chapter three god created the church two thousand years ago he said very clearly in scripture the structure that a church should have and it's real simple uh, churches need to have a plurality of qualified elders, and then he lists what their qualifications are and their role. And uh, the church needs a plurality of qualified deacons. And First Timothy 3 says what those qualifications are. 
Uh, the Bible also says what the roles and the duties of elders are, but the Bible also says what deacons are to do. What, what is a deacon supposed to do in a church? That's actually a very controversial question, but the Bible answers that, and it uses only one verb. A deacon is to deacon. Well, what, what does that mean? Well, deacon means to serve. So a deacon is to serve. That's it. That's all they do. That's their job description. And they are exemplary servants in a local church. And so that's uh, we go through a long process, actually, through the qualifications of the Bible over the course of a year, sometimes two years, as we seek qualified elders and deacons, training them, uh, having them in prayer, seeking God's will. Uh, then when the elders unanimously decide, we think this man is qualified to be a deacon and he wants to do this, then we submit that man as a candidate to all of our members and all of our members uh, get to know information about that deacon. They have observed him theoretically for years in service in the church, and then they give feedback directly to us, whether, uh, yeah, absolutely, I know him, he is qualified, or no, I have a concern, and here's my case, and can we talk about this first, or can we hold off, or whatever it is, and we get input from our members, take it very seriously, because we want uh, the recognition of our elders to be 100% from our members, as the Spirit of God speaks through every member to validate his calling in this ministry. And so uh, 1 Timothy 3 says this about deacons. Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain. In other words, they're not doing the job of deacon for money, so that's why we don't pay our deacons. Um, no, I'm just kidding. They just They have the right view of money. They hold to the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. They need to first be tested as servants in the church, and if they are faithful in their service, then let them serve as deacons if they're above reproach. Their wives also must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. And let deacons be husbands of one wife or one woman man. They're faithful to their wife if they're married. They're good managers of their household and of their children. And those who have served well as deacons obtain a blessing from God, and that is a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So I'd like, go ahead, Nathan, come on up here. You can stand here next to me and then Didi as well. So this is, I present to you, uh, Nathan and Didi. This is not a surprise to our members. They have been informed. They have given feedback. They have been in prayer. And today we just formally recognize them. Uh, a little bit about Nathan was born in Boulder, Colorado, born in Colorado. I was born in Denver, Boulder, Colorado, uh, Boulder, Colorado, CU, the Colorado University, isn't that in Boulder? Isn't it? No? Yeah, they're terrible at their football team. But anyway, come on over, Didi. A little closer. Uh, born in Colorado. Saved uh, at a summer camp when he was going into fifth grade. Uh, Didi is a native of this area and was born in San Mateo. They've been married for 40, 46 years. Wow. Is it still 46? Okay. I didn't know if it... Got to 47 after I wrote this. Uh, two grown boys, Jason and Jonathan. Jason, uh, one of our faithful members in our church here, married. Uh, Jason is married to Allison, who's also a member of our church. And Jonathan married to Joyce, and they served on the Hope House ministry this year. They are proud grandparents of five grandchildren, ages four to nine. Nathan and Dee, Dee have served in various ministries at other churches before GBF. Nathan served as a deacon at a previous church. The Eans came to GBF during the Book of Revelation. So that was probably, boy, that was a few years ago. Oh, it was in 2010. Uh, for the past seven years, they have served in many ministries, including Sunday morning, sound, setup, teardown, GBF basketball camp, GBF family camp, GBF rafting trips, fellowship meal, women's ministry, uh, serving in many GBF social fellowships, and much 
much more. And they both have been to the Mexico trip with the Hope House team, did a fantastic job. Now I would ask our elders to come up here. And the elders, we're going to pray for not just Nathan, who's joining the team as a deacon, but when you take on a, a ministry like that, either an elder or deacon, it's, it's public exposure, it's high profile, and you need supernatural sustaining grace from God through the prayers of the people. And that's what we want you to do. We want you to be praying on behalf of uh, Nathan and his ministry and all of our other deacons that we put on the bulletin. We put them there so you can be aware of them, mindful of them, and be praying for them. They serve the church many times behind the scenes in ways you could never imagine. Um, so it takes a special unction or calling from God's Spirit Himself. So we want to pray. And it has an impact on the family too. That's why we want to pray for the family and not just them. So I'm going to ask Sam, uh, chairman of our elders, to open in prayer. We'll go around and then uh, I'll close this in prayer. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, glorious day where we are able to ordain uh, our dear brother Nathan to be a deacon of GBF. Lord, we thank you for his faithful service, um, starting with his family, uh, even uh, to his kids and his grandkids. But Lord, ever since he's been here, uh, back from 2010, he's uh, faithfully served in so many capacities. Lord, I pray very specifically this day for his marriage Lord, you ordained the institution of marriage, and they've been married for 46 years. That is an amazing testimony of uh, your faithfulness in their lives. And I know that they both have served diligently together side by side, and it's such a beautiful thing to see. But now, as Nathan takes on this very official role as a deacon, we do not want to be naive. We understand that uh, the enemy, Satan, is going to try to attack um, him as he uh, as he seeks to serve. And we ask an uh, extra hand of protection on their marriage. Lord, uh, we ask that you bless their friendship with one another. Help that they continue to be on the same page as they already have a wonderful foundation. But don't let anything come in uh, as a wedge in their relationship. May they be steadfast. May their love continue to grow. And uh, we ask that you would protect their marriage uh, as, the, as Nathan goes forward in this new and important role. We thank you for this. In Christ's name I pray. Gracious Father, I thank you for this day where we get to install uh, Nathan as a deacon. And, and it's been a great day coming. But Father, he has served uh, in this role uh, not as formally as a deacon, but he has been a great servant of this church for many years. Uh, and he, uh, not only just serving, but modeling it to his children. I've been personally able to serve with his sons uh, who take on the same spirit and, and desire just to be able to serve you in almost any way possible. Nathan has helped me dig ditches all the way through to uh, the service he does regularly right now in the music area. And we thank you so much for the heart that he has. And my prayer today, Father, is that as Nathan now continues in a formal position, that you will guard his heart, allowing him to continue to serve in the manner that he has, in the joy that he has uh, throughout these many years. 
We look forward to the things that you will bless him through, through his service. And we ask that you protect him and protect his heart, Father. In your son's name we pray. And dear Father, we continue praying for Nathan in the areas of his influence and his testimony. And that's with respect to his family and in influencing and being a continual good model within um, his nuclear family with his sons, uh, their wives, and uh, their children, his grandchildren. We also pray for uh, influence in extended family. And uh, uh, God, we we pray for uh, Nathan as a businessman too, that that he would exercise great uh, influence in the um, in his business with all the workers uh, that that they hire and they rub shoulders with with his vendors, etc. May may he be a good witness and a testimony to them as well. May he reflect Jesus wherever he goes, and may you use that to grow your kingdom. And God, we ask uh, for for him within this church, but also in his daily life as he rubs shoulders with others, that he might be a very positive influence and testimony and that you would protect them in these areas. In Jesus' name. Amen. Father, I thank you as well. Uh, this is really a time to celebrate, to give you glory, to thank you. Once again, I'm reminded of the words of Jesus himself who said in Matthew that he would build his church and the gates of Hades or hell or death, Satan himself won't thwart the growth of the church as you continue to build it. You do that by saving people, but also by growing the local church through its members and also by its leadership, raising up elders, raising up deacons, teachers, leaders, disciplers. So many ways, giving us great depth and breadth, and we give you the glory for that. And we thank you that uh, Nathan could be added to the team of our deacons, and I thank you for our other deacons and their faithful service and all other exemplary leaders we have in this church. And um, pray that you go before us, protect us. We give you all the glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's hear it for uh, Nathan. Revelation, go. And in close, uh, as we're close today, we're going to sing a song. So you can go ahead and uh, start standing up. And then also after our song, we're going to have a baptism or two that you will be blessed by. So let's continue our worship. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650 630 0009.